Thank you for downloading The Luminous Mind, episode 29. Too often life happens to us when we're sitting waiting for it to come, rather than engaging this great gift that God gave us in a mind and the children that God blessed us with and the power of their mind, that if we could really harness that and direct that a little bit, I don't think there's anything we can't do. Benjamin Franklin once said, Do not curse the darkness, rather light a candle instead. If you're ready to set your mind on fire, then prepare yourself for the Luminous Mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. fire starter is Yvonne Swinson. Yvonne was born in North Carolina and was raised all over the Southeast. She attended Brigham Young University and studied child development and literature. After returning to Virginia, she met and married her husband, Steve. They now live in Southern Utah with their six children, ages four through 17. She's homeschooled all of the children and created the popular Real Moms Guide for LDS homeschoolers. She's also the author of 33 Habits of a Really Good Man. Her hobbies include reading, coaching, gymnastics, anything at the beach, and hiking the great outdoors. Welcome, Yvonne. Thank you. <laughs> I love hiking too. So, and I, where you're in southern Utah, that's some of my favorite places. Doesn't get places. much better than southern <laughs> exactly. Utah. Right? Exactly. Absolutely beautiful down there. So, so fun. All right. So, I told our audience a little bit about you. Do you kind of want to tell us a little bit more about your family and maybe your hobbies, passions, and then what you do, like if you have a profession? Sure. I um, Some of the things were obviously mentioned in that introduction, but I have um, lived almost all over the Southeast. I was born in North Carolina, moved with my family to Georgia and then Kentucky and then Virginia as a teenager. I did high school in Virginia Beach. I was the middle of three children who survived childbirth. I had twin sisters who passed away shortly after birth. Oh, and um, raised as a typical middle child personality. Um, <laughs> I'm a middle my, child too, so <laughs> I sympathize with you. <laughs> and my mother will tell you I was a rebellious soul. So um, <laughs> I I was um, very blessed to have parents who raised me with an emphasis on education and character. So I was lucky to have that. I especially looked to my dad as a role model. My book, 33 Habits of a Really Good Man, is actually about my father and 33 life lessons that he instilled in me as I was growing up. And so that's the kind of home I was raised in. Although I was not homeschooled, there was a very high emphasis on education and learning that went well beyond the subjects taught at school. And fairly early on, I found that I had a gift for teaching. Um, I was asked as a 18-year-old to teach a Sunday school class at Brigham Young University and was teaching students much older than me and found it was something I was quite comfortable with and that I felt inspired and led in doing. And so it was natural for me to study education and be involved in that at BYU. One of my favorite experiences I've had in my life was working with the Special Education Seminary at Brigham Young University and working with those children in a religious education environment. And so that was my earliest official teaching assignment and um, 
just kind of went from there. And that's what I still do quite a bit of. I'm a gymnastics coach, although that's not a full-time job because my family is the main focus of my day. I do spend between six and nine hours a week coaching a fabulous group of girls here at a local gym. And that also seems to be something I have a talent for, elements of teaching, I suppose. But I love the sport, and I love the girls, and I love to teach. So when I'm not teaching my own children and I'm not hiking, that's where I usually am. That sounds like fun. So what was your personal educational experience? I mean, you talked about how it was very important to you. It was. It was. I was um, a typical public school child on the surface. I was part of a very unique program that was being piloted in Atlanta, Georgia when we lived there. It was called the Target Program, and they tested children in the school, and I don't think they were looking for the smartest children necessarily, but children who thought about things a certain way, and they pulled us out and put us through a gifted program that our math, instead of giving us a math problem that said four plus four equals what, they said, tell us five ways to solve this problem. And I look back on that and consider that uh, a real gift that I had as a fifth grade student, learning how to not just do math, but many different ways to do math. And that was kind of my dad's approach at home, too. If there was a, a problem, whether it was an argument with a sister or a math problem, I couldn't solve anywhere on that spectrum, he would ask me for a list of solutions. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I think that that was something that created a real um, depth in education. So That sounds great. Anyway. So why did you choose to homeschool? That is an interesting story. I was a nanny for a while for a family back in Gloucester, Virginia, who had two boys, one of whom was in elementary school and the other one who was in his last year before kindergarten. And without even trying to teach the four-year-old I was in charge of, we would walk around the park and point things out or read street signs while we were going, or I would take him grocery shopping for the family's groceries and have him count apples as we put them into the bag or whatever. And I stayed with him through the next year when he went into kindergarten and noticed that his skills regressed in kindergarten below that that he went into kindergarten with. Oh, that's sad. And I was surprised by that. And that was the first thing that got me thinking was that maybe the classroom setting isn't necessarily the best learning environment for every child because he clearly learned more with me than he did in that setting. And then to tell you the truth, my decision was completed when I had my own little girl and she was coming up on kindergarten age. And I drove past the bus stop one morning and saw these little teeny tiny children standing at the bus stop in the dark with giant backpacks on their back. And I took one look at that scene and I said, I can never do that to my child. (laughs) 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 It was kind of an odd way into homeschooling. I wasn't totally sold on the philosophy so much as I was absolutely sure I was not ready to part with her on those conditions. And so I thought, well, we'll just try kindergarten and see how it goes. And it went great. So we decided to try first grade and see how that went. And it went great. And we just kept going with it. So it was a great experience, but not one I had really mapped out much ahead of time. So and she's 17 now. Is she your oldest then? She's 17 now. And what is... And she's no longer exclusively homeschooled. She is in a program where she goes to the public school for about half of her classes, and she does the other half of her classes at home. Okay. All right. Do you feel like that gave her some self-direction, though, to have her homeschooled and stuff? I absolutely do. And when I compare her educational experience to many of her classmates, I think she stands head and shoulders above many of them because of the type of independence she learned at home. Yeah, great. So do you want to tell us about your educational philosophy? We kind of discussed uh, before we started taping that 
you have created the Real Moms Guide for LDS homeschoolers. And so how do you feel religion plays a part of your homeschooling experience? I can sum that up in one sentence. I believe that the Spirit of God can teach my child better than I can. That's so true. That is very true. And so I found that the more we bring that spirit into our learning and the more God-led and spirit-led I am in teaching, the more powerful the learning becomes and the more lasting the lessons are. Yeah. Well, and we discussed beforehand, too, that, you know, my experience has been, I used to believe that you could have a secular type of education, but just watching my own children, I realized that, and kind of thinking back on my own education, that I realized when I, you know, was there a conflict with my, what I was learning academically and what I was learning religiously, and really a lot of their questions stem back to religious roots. Would you say that's Mm -hmm. true? And, and, And how do you go about bringing your religion into your homeschooling? Well, there's a lot of different ways to do that. I mean, I remember as a high school student myself being raised Mormon and living in the Bible Belt, my religion was challenged often, not only in the hallways of school, but also in the classrooms at school. And I remember kind of having to find my way through that with some help largely from my dad and being able to confidently go back into the classroom and reteach the students, the the real Mormon history, not the one that they were necessarily getting without that. And so I think that was kind of my first taste of you can't really separate the secular from the religious. They almost have to be tied together. But I know in there's there's different ways that we do it. There's almost no area of schooling that you can't include um, Christianity and God and religion and the spirit in. A lot of it is sometimes just as simple as your motivation in doing something. So yes, we do begin our school day by studying the scriptures and having a devotional and singing a hymn and memorizing scripture and things like that. That's sort of exclusively religious. But I've also taught reading right out of the Bible in the Book of Mormon. Another one of my philosophies is that the more hands-on learning is, the more it tends to stick with the child. But if we are doing math in the kitchen, for example, doubling a recipe or having a recipe or whatever, if they know the whole time we're doing that, that the point of making that recipe is to serve a neighbor in need next door, then even that filters into your math, for example. Yeah, Um, that's true. So I think a lot of it is just your overall goals as a family being Christ-centered and service-centered. It tends just to seep into every subject. That's really great. You know, and if you think about education in in the long run anyway, every subject that is uh that is taught, I mean even history takes a a bit of faith, you know. To, oh yeah. I mean because we're just going off people's uh I always tell my children that the things that they learn are mostly someone else's philosophy. Right. What they may believe may or may not be true. I mean even in history, science is definitely that way, you know, that it's just somebody else's theory and math could even be that way. And then reading, of course, uh that comes down to a lot of, I mean, reading alone has that conflicts with, you know, their values and their character a lot, depending on the stories that they're reading uh, for good or for bad. So, And that's one thing when I developed my curriculum, the Real Mom Guide, the history curriculum in particular, when I selected the literature for that program, I'm trying to choose literature about people who recognize the hand of God in their lives or include literature that's specifically about religious figures in history 
Uh, you know, you read a typical history handbook and you're not going to hear about William Tyndale, for example, but in my history guide, you will have that chapter studied in history. And so I think in history is one of the, the most obvious spots where you can leave God completely out of history or you can make history all about God. And I definitely chose to put the church into our history. That's great. So how has your paradigm or educational philosophy kind of changed over time and with experience? Well, I tell you what, with my very first child, I was very by the book. I did public school, but in my house. And so we had our phonics program and we had our half an hour of math workbooks and we had the science worksheets that we filled out and the math paperwork. And it was mostly done sitting at a table. And the further along I went to that role, the less table time we had. Yes, they do need to learn to write their letters. So some of it has to be at the table. But we studied science at the river and in the mountains. And we curled up on the couch and did our reading. And we did math in the kitchen. And we sprawled out a picnic blanket in the yard and just talked. And and so it became more relaxed and more lacking the structure and the sit in a chair and sit in front of a table kind of experience that they have in a typical classroom setting. And what did, that, how do you feel? That's probably one change. <laughs> how do you feel like um, the learning's been received by your kids in that type? Exceptionally you know? well. Yeah. Exceptionally well. Now, I personally could never go all the way to the unschooling end of the homeschooling spectrum. That's just a little bit too compulsive to have been comfortable there. And so I, I did have certain accountability and certain programs that we worked our way through. But when I first started, I was so rigid. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way math was being done on the couch. And well, now I just laugh. I don't even know if we have a chair in front of a table anywhere other than <laughs> when we sit down to eat. <laughs> That's funny. Well, and um, with every child, too, I'm sure you've noticed, at least I have with my own children, that some things really pique their interest and they want to study them very in depth. And then other things we seem to skim over the top because there's, you know, they learn about it, but it's just not something that they're really excited right. about and trying to motivate them to be excited about it. Some, that's probably the worst thing to do is just to keep pushing it. So Right. And I remember, uh, I guess it was a parable or something I read as a child about a mother leading her little girl on a nature walk and she would hurry and point her at the butterfly and rush her over here to look at these leaves and rush her forward to look at this and, and the whole nature walk was done like they had to check off this checklist and when they were finished they were both exhausted and child is asleep in her arms and the whole point of the parable was like you know if you just stopped at the butterfly and spent the day at the first stop it would have been a whole different experience and sometimes we learn more when we let the child lead the pace and follow them in the direction that their interest goes. Exactly. So what is the best advice that you've ever received? The best advice I ever received was the baby is the lesson. I had three of my children very close together. My first daughter was born and I suffered a series of miscarriages, three actually in a row. And so when we finally got our second child, we decided to throw caution to the wind and let the other babies came as they would. And the next two came very quickly. And so when I was feeling very overwhelmed with young children in my home, I remember feeling this sense that I wasn't getting through my checklist, that we weren't you know, we hadn't read in two whole days or we hadn't done math in a, a day and a half or and I was getting really obsessed with that. And then I, I read a beautiful lesson about how the, the baby is the lesson. The most important things that we can learn in education are the things that are still going to matter 20 years from now. That's true. And tied with that idea, a gentleman, Glenn Kimber, came and spoke at a homeschool conference back east. And he said, imagine to yourself that it's now years down the road and the toddler you're teaching now is now a 30-year-old mother herself with a toddler. And you happen to sit on an airplane beside somebody and you get to talking with her and she says, 
oh, your daughter is my neighbor. And he said, imagine the next sentence, what you would want it to be. She's so fast at her times tables. (laughs) It's not what you want to hear. You want to hear she's so kind. She's such a good mother. She's so warm and loving. You know, those things can't be taught in a math workbook, even though the math is important. What we're really teaching is character. And in those cases, having those little babies in your home and just embracing them with warmth and tenderness, you're teaching the other people in the home the most important lesson of all. That's true. That's really great. Thank you. So what do you think? uh, I'm going to ask you the big socialization question that we all get. What do you think about socialization? You know, I'd have to laugh at the socialization (laughs) question because my children, if anything, need a lot less. (laughs) And I don't I I don't mean necessarily the negative socialization that you can acquire sometimes in a group of peers. That's not the type of socialization I want. But my children are such outgoing, bubbly, talk to people of any age kind of children. I never even thought about that. And so like the 50th person asked me the same question. I'm like, people must really be worried about this, but... (laughs) Have they met my kids? Yeah. <laughs> it's one that it was just a head scratcher for me because my children just don't lack social skills and never have. And it was never part of a lesson we taught or something we consciously instilled in them. They just went out there and talked to people and they were fine with it. And so that was just a question that was never on my radar at all and that continues to be one that I puzzle over. Yeah. And I always think it's funny. They ask you that question and then, you know, paragraph later, they're complaining about all the horrible things their kids are picking up in school. So I always find that kind of fun. Right. What do you say? (laughs) What would you say are the biggest obstacles you face? And then share with us some things that you've learned from obstacles you've had. Oh, the biggest obstacle I face is feeling overwhelmed. The house is a mess and the baby is screaming and the toddler's throwing crayons instead of coloring. And it just kind of all comes at the same time while the spaghetti's (laughs) boiling over and the phone is ringing. Those are the biggest obstacles. Yeah, Um, And then you get to the end of the day and you look back and you're like, gosh, did I accomplish anything school-wise today or was it just one of those days? What I've learned from those lessons, from those obstacles, is that teaching happens all the time. You don't have to check off a half an hour of math for your child to learn math. You don't have to check off an hour of history study. If you're talking to them all the time and your conversations are open and warm and you have one, even if you have a rotten day where you literally never open a book, as long as that doesn't become your pattern, the learning still happens. And that really hit me very strongly when I sent my oldest into this part-time school environment because we were trying to kind of give her a taste of what it would be like in a classroom setting as she moved on into a college environment. We thought it would be good to do when she got to an age where she had a good foundation under her. And oh my goodness, I what I was able to do in a few hours at home every day, she went in and is literally the top student in every class she's met. <laughs> so clearly, even with all those bad days in the middle, clearly there was learning going on. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, and sometimes the greatest thing that you can teach your children when all of that's happening, you know, you feel like your world's all falling down on you is how to handle that with grace, you know, right. <laughs> how, to, exactly. how, to, how to be one of those people that can smile their that way the through it. the obstacle itself can be the lesson, right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Before we go on, let us take a minute and hear about our sponsors. Hey, Firestarters, this is Mark, producer of The Luminous Mind. If you're like me, the thought of going out to the store and shopping is enough to make you want to crawl in a hole and hide. If that's you, then do your shopping online through Amazon. Just go to theluminousmind.net, click on the Amazon link, and shop away. Also, most of the books and resources that Rebecca and her guests discuss can be found on our Amazon links as well. Again, if you're like me, you have already 
accidentally signed up for Amazon Prime, so most of those purchases should have free shipping as well. Good luck! mind with Yvonne Swinson. Well, one thing was a change in my philosophy about a clean house. Um, I mentioned earlier that I'm a little bit of a compulsive person, and so I, I would love if my house was always supersonic clean. I had to learn to relax those standards and realize that while a clean house does foster a better learning environment, it isn't the point. Yeah, exactly. So if I can maintain a level of cleanliness that allows it to function and that allows the children in my care to have their needs met well, I mean, if every single dish in the entire house is dirty, I'm not going to be able to feed them when they're hungry. So obviously... (laughs) Dream is not good, but yeah. if there's a basket of clothes that didn't get folded today, as long as their needs are met and there's warm clothes to put on their body that are clean, and it's about meeting the needs of those that are in my care. Yeah. And so I, I did. I relaxed my standards some, and the other thing that I learned was that when you have your whole family home, there's it's not just me trying to deal with all the obstacles. And so, yes, the 10-year-old can take a break from her math lesson to hold the baby. And so and so can answer the phone, and you know it, you you have helpers around you all the time. If you just learn to be a little bit more flexible minded, and that was something that was a little a hard lesson for me to learn, but yeah. one that I that I have learned. Yeah, I was really compulsive with the cleaning too, and finally I had to just let go and go. You know what? My ten year old can clean the bathroom, and you know my, right. and it's not done necessarily to my level of perfection, but she's learning how to clean the bathroom. You know, so right. So. My, my bathroom is at my level of perfection, but if theirs is then I'm okay with it. Yeah, exactly. Here here you go. Here's your bathroom. <laughs> and they'll get better. So Right. All right. right. And there's there's a point. I can't let it go beyond a certain point. Because again, <laughs> you know, a clean home helps the mind work better in my mind. But the common areas, if I can keep the family room and the kitchen and that area looking pretty tidy, I can kinda of let those corners and closets of the house go a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> So what are some successes that you've seen then? You know, I one of my biggest things, and, I, and maybe I should have mentioned this earlier when you are talking about philosophy, was that to teach a child to love to read. If they love to read, if they love books, they can learn anything they want to learn. And so one of my success stories, I think, is with my first couple of children, they were very, very early readers, partly because I emphasized it so much and partly because I think they were just born with the right set of genes to be four-year-old readers. Yeah. My fourth child came along and I was in a little bit of a panic mode when we got to six years old and she was still just barely sounding out cat, pat, mat. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this? But one of my success stories is that I didn't panic. There was a part of me that was kind of sitting right on that edge. And I just took a deep breath and I'm like, there's too much reading in this house for this to go very long. So at some point she'll turn the corner. Well, she was close to her seventh birthday when one night I was just having one of those days where I needed the kids to go to bed early. And I said, guys, listen, I'm sorry, I'm done. <laughs> so I know it's really early, but go to your room and find a book and let's call it a day. And she looked at me with these big sad eyes like, but I can't read a book. And I said, well, honey, for tonight, you're going to have to look at some pictures and I'll read you tomorrow. Something clicked with her and she knew 
that she had to learn to read if she wanted to be able to enjoy those treasures on her own. And literally within one month, she was reading chapter books. Holy cow. Yeah. And it was just waiting for that child's desire to kick in. Yeah. And so I was so proud of myself for not shoving it down her throat when she was four or five or six, just waiting a little bit and letting that child breathe and develop their own desire and literally to go from, I can't read Cat in a Hat to I'm reading the boxcar children in a day and a half. Wow. It was phenomenal to watch what, what a child's desire does for their learning. Yeah, their own drive for it. So, yeah, and you think about that. I mean, the world standard anymore, I mean, they want them reading at such younger and yeah. younger ages. It's almost creating a, a feeling that they hate it. <laughs> You know, so right. definitely teaching them how to love it is very important. So share with some, share with us some personal habits that kind of help to make you successful, and maybe how you do organize your home. I mean, how you keep it organized. Do you have any? Well, I will tell you that the first half hour of the day is incredibly ordered in my house because I feel like if you start the day off on the wrong foot, the whole day just kind of goes downhill from wherever you start. And so before I go to bed at night, I spend about a half an hour going through that common area. Has the clothes been rotated, so I'm waking up to clean clothes? Has the dishwasher been started, so I'm waking up to clean dishes? Is the table cleaned off so when we start the day, we're starting, you know, I do that every night for about a half an hour. And then when we wake up in the morning, we also have about a half an hour routine. The kids are getting dressed and making their beds and gathering up for breakfast while I am folding that load of clothes that was dry and waiting for me and emptying the dishwasher that had it. And so to me, when we start that day off in that orderly, they know what to expect. Every morning it's the exact same thing. And we start with clean dishes and clean clothes and clean table. Then we don't have to deal with those petty obstacles to really get down to it. As far as habits that I have that I think have helped with my success, the biggest single one I would identify is that I have never stopped learning. Oh, that is I, I read. I am a book devourer. I read probably 50 to 60 books a year. And on busier years than that, especially if I'm reading a lot of children's books with the children and stuff like that, I mean, they just fly out of my house and pile. And we actually, when we moved all of our books into a new location just for fun, we counted them all. We've got over 2,000 books in our home. Oh, wow. Um, so, so that is a habit, that there's always a book laying there. Kid is in my house, you're not going to go into any room without there being a book that you can lay hands on. And they see me read all the time. Yeah. And I think that alone is setting an example for finding, and, and I don't just read it and keep it to myself. I'll read it. And I'll go, oh, I read the most interesting thing last night. Did you know that? And so I'm hoping to instill in them that there's always a treasure to be found when you open a book. Yeah. I find when I, I sneak stuff in like that, you know, with my own, oh, this is the most interesting thing. I've never thought of that. I can sneak in, you know, my own personal values and the character that I feel like that person has or I think it helps them learn a little more about what I value. Right. So. Absolutely. And plus they see the type of books that I check out. I think one of the problems that we have as a society is we're choosing really poor heroes. We're just, when, when we adore the rock star or the movie star or the football player, or not that some of them don't have admirable qualities to model because some of them are extraordinary people, but by and large, the people we choose are not worthy of our devotion. Exactly. <laughs> and so they seem to be reading biographies of people that can be heroes. Yeah, 
Um, and that's one reason I wrote the book about my dad. I did not write that book with the intent to publish it. I wrote that book because we lost my dad in 2006, and my two younger children never knew him. And my fourth child was just tiny when he died, and so I knew their memories of him would be limited. And he, of all the people in my life outside of the Savior, has been my hero. And I wanted to capture some of those stories and some of those lessons that they could read. And I planned just to take it down to Kinko's and spiral bind it and stick it under the Christmas tree for them. And a couple of friends of mine read it, and they're like, no, that's the kind of hero we want to read about, and then we think you should take it in to somebody and, and see if they'll publish it. And so I was really excited that the publisher felt there was enough people looking for that kind of hero that they published the book. But we don't do that enough. And, and when my children see me read, they see me reading biographies and history and things of that nature, and then I'm sharing these stories about these people that I consider true heroes, and hopefully that is setting them up with some models for behavior that they wouldn't be getting out of your typical, you know, science fiction action junior book. Yeah, exactly. Great. So what are some long-term goals that you have for yourself and maybe for your family? Oh, long-term goals, travel. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, it's one thing to study all the places in the world, but I, when I was 40 years old, I finally fulfilled a lifelong dream that was a long-term goal for me. My husband sent me to Israel. And I came back a changed person. I want my family to experience more of that. And that's a hard thing to do with a family of eight on a budget. But long-term goal, that would be a really big one. Yeah. One of the specific travel goals I have is that I want to take my family on a humanitarian vacation where we can go and get our hands dirty and serve people and see what people in other places live like because I think it will change them. I think it will make them different people. Definitely put some gratitude in their heart. (laughs) What advice or encouragement would you have for someone who's just starting out? Keep your eye on the long goal. As a gymnastics coach, one of the things I teach my girls on the balance beam is that if they hold their head up and they look out at the end of the beam, that's when they don't fall. The girls that fall off the beam have stopped and looked down at the mat or they stop and look down at the seat. Oh, I love this. And that's what we do as homeschoolers, too. If we stop and look straight down at what we're doing right now, it's really, really easy to get discouraged, and that's when we tend to fall off the beam. Yeah. But if we look out at the long range, at the long-term goals of what we're accomplishing years from now rather than today, we're going to stay on that little straight and narrow. Yeah, I really love that. That's a great analogy. Thank you. Do you have a favorite book or resource that you'd like to share with us? That was the hardest question I anticipated coming (laughs) because I have read thousands of books and many of them have changed my life. But I do have a top 10 list (laughs) and I will rattle off a couple of those. I love Les Miserables. Many people say that Victor Hugo's book rates second only to the Bible and I can see why many people say that. It's a book that would change lives. Neil A. Maxwell's biography, A Disciple's Life. Oh, I love him. Um, He's a neat I person. love Neil A. Maxwell. He is one of my personal heroes, and that book was life-changing for me. Another little children's historical fiction book that, to me, taught two powerful lessons. One, the power of literacy, and number two, the importance of agency. Not freedom, because freedom and agency are a little different, and it's a subtle line at times. But that book, you can see very clearly the difference in freedom and agency and how important agency is. And On Wings of Faith, which talks about Ezra Taft Benson's experiences in post-war Europe, is one of my top ten books. Another one that every mother should read is called Protecting the Gift, and it's about 
common myths that we have in protecting our children and how instead to do the things that really will protect them, especially from predators that might be after our children. And that one was a real eye-opener for me because I was a victim of child abuse as a child. And um, so I could go on. I mean, there's another five or six on my list, but those are some of my favorite ones. And every one of them has changed the kind of person I am, the kind of mother that I am. That's how you know you found a good book, huh? (laughs) Right. So, So what changes would you like to see in the future, in the world in the future? Oh, in the world. I would like to see, particularly here in the United States, I would like to see us pull away from the government model of education and start opening our minds more to how we can teach our children more effectively. I think that we've gotten way too locked into this has to be a classroom full of six-year-olds and, you know, lunches at 12 and the school bus and the cafeteria lady and everything has to fit this pre-sculpted idea of education. And I think that we're starting to make tiny steps in that direction. We have charter schools out here in Utah that are doing some incredible things, but they still have certain set of parameters that they have to work within. I think that's Uh, the biggest challenge that we have is that, you know, everybody thinks that education should look this one way. And so those bureaucrats who are kind of in charge of that, they set up that parameter, but education can look so different to so many different people. So So I'd like to see more of more parent choice available, more private schools popping up, different educational ideas available to different people that where we're not boxed in by the tax code or the government model. Yeah. I think that's a long time coming because the fact of the matter is if you handed me millions of children to educate, you almost have to form some type of assembly line to do it. And so we don't just have to change the government model. We ought to have to change parents' minds about that. Yeah. But it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. One of the number one things that I hear from parents is I'll hear them say, oh, I'd love to homeschool, but I want my children to have the same experience that I had. You know, they want them to go through high school and do all the dances and go to the football games and, and all that stuff. And all that stuff is fun, but life changes. I mean, technology has mm-hmm. changed. And so I don't understand why... And and even our experience, their experience is going to be so much different than what we had years ago. And so I kind of agree with you in that regard. I mean, it's going to have to come from the parents changing, you know, their own personal philosophy. Before we say goodbye, is there any parting words of advice that you have or a favorite quote that you'd like to share? And then if you'd like to share your contact information, that would be great, too. Okay. Um, let me do the confirmation first. It's Yvonne Swinson, and it's spelled S-W-I-N-S-O-N at gmail.com is my email address. I do also have a website, which is www.polarstarstudies.com. I could name a lot of quotes uh, that are really <laughs> meaningful to me because that's something I included in that little book for my dad. But just to end with one that's a little bit humorous while still hitting the point, my dad used to say, God created you with two ends, one to think with and one to sit on. Heads you win, tails you lose. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think that in imparting words, too often life happens to us when we're sitting waiting for it to come, rather than engaging this great gift that God gave us in a mind and the children that God blessed us with and the power of their mind, that if we could really harness that and direct that a little bit, I don't think there's anything we can't do. And my parting words of advice would be, don't give up. It's really easy to throw in the towel after a frustrating day, but if we just hang with it and go a little longer, it'll all turn out in the end. 
That's great. Thank you so much, uh, Yvonne, for joining us and giving us your words of wisdom. I definitely believe that ordinary people are doing just amazing things, and I appreciate you being part of that and sharing your experiences with us. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. To learn more about Yvonne, please go to our website, theluminousmind.net. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Google+. Be sure to subscribe to our audio content on iTunes as well as YouTube. Help us to continue to light minds on fire and change the paradigm of education 